right, well, I'd invite you to turn in your Bibles to Numbers 27 as we continue on our journey in the wilderness. For those of you who have not been with us, uh, in case you didn't know, Numbers is the fourth book of the Bible, uh, so it's pretty easy to find, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and then Numbers. Uh, if you don't have a Bible with you, there uh, should be some in one of the chairs in front of you somewhere. Uh, and if not, we'll, we'll get you one. We'll make sure that, that we got one. Because um, you want to be able to see it for yourself as we work through this. So we're going to be in Numbers chapter 27. And uh, if you were with us last time, then you already know that, that we've actually come past the wilderness now, even though our series is still called In the Wilderness. Uh, we've come past the wilderness to the plains of Moab, uh, also called Shittim where the Lord is preparing a new generation uh, to do what the previous unfaithful generation failed to do, to enter the land he promised as an inheritance to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, uh, here in today's passage, um, we encounter a bit of what you might consider case law, uh, in which the Lord addresses the parceling out of that inheritance, the land that they're coming into. In the case of a man who died without sons which was the normal way inheritance was passed on. So um, if you have hopefully had enough time to be able to find Numbers 27, um, and we'll be reading the first 11 verses here. Here's what Moses records for us. The daughters of Zelophehad, son of Hafer, the son of Gilead, the son of Machir, the son of Manasseh, belonged to the clans of Manasseh, son of Joseph. The names of the daughters were Mala, Noah, Hogla, Milcah, and Tirzah. They approached the entrance to the tent of meeting and stood before Moses, Eleazar the priest, the leaders of the whole assembly, the leaders and the whole assembly, and said, Our father died in the desert. He was not among Korah's followers who banded together against the Lord, but he died for his own sin and left no sons. Why should our father's name disappear from his clan because he had no son? Give us property among our father's relatives. So Moses brought their case before the Lord, and the Lord said to him, What Zelophehad's daughters are saying is right. You must certainly give them property as an inheritance among their father's relatives and turn their father's inheritance over to them. Say to the Israelites, if a man dies and leaves no son, turn his inheritance over to his daughter. If he has no daughter, give his inheritance to his brothers. If he has no brothers, give his inheritance to his father's brothers. If his father had no brothers, give his inheritance to the, to the nearest relative in his clan, that he may possess it. This is to be a legal requirement for the Israelites, as the Lord commanded Moses. Let's pray together. Father, as we encounter your word today, help us to see past the uh, differences in culture and in law and expectations to be able to see what you have for us in your word. Lord, we're reminded that this is a supernatural book. And while we can understand the writing, we can understand uh, the content, we can't fully grasp the message you have for us apart from your supernatural intervention. And so, Lord, 
Help us to use the reason that you've given us, the brains that you've put in our heads, but help us even more to submit ourselves to your Spirit, that he might open our eyes to, prove, to see the wonderful things that you have for us in your Word. These things we pray by your Spirit, in the name of your Son, and for your glory alone. Amen. All right, so uh, today we find ourselves in another passage that, that might be easy to either dismiss as kind of pointless. I mean, really, why are we talking about uh, these five ladies and their inheritance? What in the world does that have to do with us? Or to misinterpret, to say, oh, yeah, here's, here are the, the six moral lessons that we, come, that we drag out of this text, and that would also be a mistake. Interestingly, as I was... Uh, preparing for, for this week, uh, I encountered both of those things. I, I saw a number of commentaries, one in particular from, from a Jewish female rabbi, obviously not from an Orthodox uh, branch, but from a, a more uh, um, Reformed, uh, newer, new school, if you will, Judaism. And what she saw in this was absolutely the liberation and elevation of women. And this is, this is a, a, a message that we need to understand that women need to stand up and claim their rights in this oppressive patriarchy. Okay, um, that's not what I'm seeing in the text. Others, even in, in ordinarily sound commentaries, just kind of skip over it. Here's the facts, ma'am, boom, and we go, we go past it. And yet... The Lord has told us in 2 Timothy 3.16 and 17 that every word of Scripture is God-breathed and useful. And because it's God-breathed and useful in taking hold of what God has for us in His Word, the disciple of Christ can be equipped for every good work. So somehow, God is speaking to us in this case law from ancient Israel before they even got to what we now know as the land of Israel. How's that work out? So I got to tell you, it's not, un, not unimportant. And it's not merely a liberation passage, though there are elements there. Here's the core reality. It's in your programs, it's on the screen. The core reality, the thing that binds this text together, the main idea that, that is included here is that because God is faithful, there is hope for the powerless in a world of injustice. Because God is faithful, there is hope for the powerless in a world of injustice. Now, understand, everything that we've been seeing in this story from what actually physically happens in, in the historical narrative for Israel to the metaphorical or, or, or meta points that we see here is that God is at the center of everything. From the very beginning, when he ordered his people, when he, when he counted them in that first census and he told them this is how you're going to camp and this is how you're going to build the tabernacle and we're going to put the tabernacle at the center and all the tribes will camp on the four sides, north, south, east, west, facing in toward the tabernacle. In other words, Every part of the life of God's people was to be oriented toward God himself. He was the focus. 
when they got their focus off of him, everything fell apart, which honestly sounds a lot like me. So now, as we walk through the book, if we see these passages and we don't see him at the center, then we're missing the point. If you were with us in the beginning, then you know when we walked through the whole book and and took a, a big picture look at it, what we discovered is that uh, the core reality for the book of Numbers is pretty, pretty simple and clear. Our unfaithful choices have consequences, but God remains faithful to his covenant promises. He doesn't change. I blow it all the time. This is where my family says, amen, you do, yeah, absolutely, right? If you're honest with yourself, you know you do too. There's not one of us here that's clean. Not one of us here that's righteous on our own. Now, you can look at the person next to you and say, I'm, I'm doing better than they are. Okay, that, that's kind of a low bar, right? The standard is God, his perfection. A holy God cannot abide less than holiness. So if you have any sin at all, you can't be with God. And that's a problem. Because he's the source of life. Therefore, sin brings death. Now, here in this story, we've just come through the second census. All right, so the first 10 chapters, God's preparing his people to go into the promised land. They start to move and immediately have friction. Everything's great the first 10 chapters until they actually have to do something, right? I love this job until I have to show up for work. So that's kind of what's going on here right? God prepares them, counts them, he orders them, he gives them a picture. Then in the middle 10 chapters, we see that the the results of that unfaithful generation who get to the promised land and their sinfulness, their lack of believing God, is best pictured when they actually get to the very precipice of the promised land and they send the spies into Canaan. You all remember, you know, you remember this song from when you were kids. You know, they sent the spies in and ten were bad and two were good. And so they come back with this report. Man, the land's better than we ever imagined. However, giants, armies of giants, no thanks. We're heading back. Uh, we're dumping this. Kick Moses out. We're going back to Egypt. And God says, uh, that's not how this works. So those of that unfaithful generation were sentenced to wander in the wilderness for 40 years, number representing a generation, by the way, until every one of them was gone. And then God would fulfill his promises just as he had promised centuries before through their children. By the way, they use their children as an excuse. Our children will be prey if we go in there. God says, you think they're going to be prey? You all are going to be buzzard food, and I'm going to bring your children in. So now, those those years have passed. The new generation is here. God has just taken another census, and he delineates that census. It's all males over 20 years old, able to fight in the military because it's, it's, it's... organizing them for war in the beginning, and now he's taking a similar census. Not one person who was in the first census is in the second, because they're dead, except for Caleb and Joshua, because God had promised them that they, out of everybody, would get into the promised land. Now, 
the number of the people in the count is almost the same. It's a little less. There are consequences to our unfaithful choices. But God remains faithful. And so he brings the people in, and they're not significantly diminished. It's not like, oh my gosh, there's half of these people that, you know, he wiped them all out. They're, they're just, you know, like 18,000 less after just having 24,000 people wiped out in a plague. God's being faithful. So now immediately after that, this new census is preparing them to be able to divide up the land. In fact, God tells them, you're going to go out and you're going to divide up the land. We'll get into this, uh, into this promised land, the Canaan area. We go across the Jordan. And when we come here, you're going to drive everybody out. And then you're going to divide up the land according to the tribes and clans and families. And you're going to divide that up by lot, but you're going to give a bigger amount to a bigger group and a smaller amount to a smaller group. It's amazing how logical God is, right? He's a God of order and justice. But there's a problem. This one cat, Zelophehad, he's from the, the half-tribe of Manasseh. Manasseh and Ephraim are the two halves of Joseph. So we'll, for the rest of the, of the history of Israel, we'll see them referred to as tribes, Manasseh and Ephraim, even though they're actually half-tribes of Joseph. So you still have 12 tribes, even though the tribe of Levi doesn't count in the census because those are the priests. They don't get land. Now, why am I telling you all this? Because God cares about legacy. And he cares about keeping his promise. His promise to Abraham that he would make him into a great nation and he would bring him into a land flowing with milk and honey, this land of promise, had to be kept. And as he's doing this, God doesn't leave anyone out. The normal, the normal uh, way of doing things, however, is that inheritance is passed on through the son. So the father has the son, son inherits. If, the, if something happens to, to uh, that son, then it goes to the next son. Right? That's just how, how it goes. And so as he would divide his inheritance up among his sons, the oldest would get double the share of the others, and, and sons would have it. That's great. Except for, and, and the daughters would then receive what they have for property through their own husbands as they get married. That's how it worked. In the world around them and the pagan nations the women were treated as chattel essentially as slaves they they were bartered and traded because women and children weren't actually considered equal right? that was a whole different realm it was very much uh, i want to be careful about saying this i want to help you understand but i also want to confuse us slavery in the bible is not in, in almost no way, at almost no time, is it parallel or comparable to the chattel slavery that we saw in America in the transatlantic slave trade. Totally different concept of slavery. So uh, I don't want to confuse the two. However, the pagan world basically treated women kind of like that. That's the, the picture that you have. I own you. You do what I say. You exist for my purposes. You don't have rights. You don't have a voice. Now, they, they were limited in, in, in property rights, as you see here, even in Israel. 
But God created us, male and female, both in his image. God loves, don't miss this, God loves men and women equally. Men and women have equal value before God. That's not new in the New Testament. That has always been true. Now, getting on to, to where we're, we're moving here, because God is faithful, this is, this is the point of the passage. It's another facet of demonstrating that God is faithful to his promises. It's reiterating and emphasizing the fact that God doesn't change just because things seem bad. God is not suddenly unjust because I don't understand his justice or I don't see a way that he's going to carry out his plan. God is not less God. He's not less loving. He knows what he's doing. Because God is faithful, there is hope for the powerless in a world of injustice. These women in, in all of ancient times, whether, whether in Israel or in the pagan nations, were essentially powerless. They did not have the rights to this property, the legal standing. And yet, because God is faithful, those who did not hold power still had hope, even though the world around them is filled with injustice, because God is just, and God is faithful, and he provides all right, so in this passage, as we go through this, there are three main things that we can observe, right? So I'll, I'll give you these three main things, and then we'll come back and fill in the blanks with it. So first, we see the character of the Lord. Then we see the character of the women. And then we see the character of the law. As we observe these things, there are applications that we can draw from it. I'm going to try as hard as I can not to spend too much time getting bogged down in the weeds uh, but y'all know me, so, you know, take it for what it's worth. First notice the character of the Lord. As we see in this passage, the daughters of Zelophehad, uh, <laughs> this is me self-editing because I had a joke there I'm not, not going to tell because it's just not appropriate, so I'm going to stop. We don't want to be too lighthearted and, and forget that we're talking about God's word here. These women come to the place where the leaders are meeting. It's in front of the whole assembly. They come to the tent of meeting. The tent of meeting is where Moses would meet with God, and it's where the leaders, all male, of, of the nation would come for decision-making, for governance, for all, all of these things. So as they come together, they gather here. It's not unheard of. Some commentators would pretend that it is. It's not unheard of for women to come out to this, to, to be out there. But they came with a purpose. They came with an intent. And the intent was to petition Moses and the leaders on behalf of their father. Don't miss that, right? Because we think, oh, these women are grasping for their rights and, and seeking liberation. That's not actually what they're doing as we read the text. Their concern is for their father's name passing out of the legacy. They don't want to see that happen. There aren't any sons. They don't have any brothers to take it. And so there is absolutely an element of, if you will, liberation as these women are, are grasping 
not for the inheritance for themselves, though it will go to them, but for the sake of their family line, to preserve their father's name in Israel among those who receive the inheritance. All right, so as they come, they, they point out, you know, our father died in the desert along with that whole generation. Obviously, they've been talking about this for 40 years, so they know what's going on. And they make a point specifically to say that he didn't die in Korah's rebellion. If you were with us, you might remember in early cha- earlier chapters, Korah rose up and wanted to take a role that God did not give him. It's interesting to me that, that they point this out. A couple of reasons. Korah's line gets, they get wiped out. You, you rebelled against God, against God's leader Moses, and God swallows you up in the earth and consumes your partners with fire from the tent of meeting. That's not a good thing, in case you were wondering. Very dramatic, because God's making a very strong point. The rest of the generation also died in sin, but not in rebellion in that same way. So because everyone died in sin, they're recognizing that's why their father died, part of a sinful generation. However, God didn't keep the inheritance from the descendants of those who died in the wilderness, which has been kind of the point of the book. So they're saying, look, dad was just like everybody else who died for their own sin. Why should his name be blotted out as if he were one of those evil rebels turning away? It's also interesting that they're coming to seek an inheritance which they have no legal right to. And they're pointing out that our father was not like Korah, who aspired to a role he had no legal right to. They're making sure that we see a difference between the rebellion of Korah and not only their father's sin and his death, but what they're doing now. They're not grasping for something that that is unjust. They're coming to ask for something they believe is absolutely just and in keeping with what God wants. Or they wouldn't be coming. Why would you go to God if you believe you're asking God for something He's not going to give you? That makes no sense. So, we see here the character of the Lord. They are recognizing God's faithfulness. Mark this down. God is faithful to his sovereign purpose, his covenant promises, and his loving justice. God is faithful to his sovereign purpose, his covenant promises, and his loving justice. I won't spend a lot of time on this because this is where we have been in the last uh, few weeks, but I want to remind us this is the point. God's character is the, it's, it's the foundation of the entire passage. If you, if you keep your thumb there in, uh, in Numbers 27, turn to the next book of Deuteronomy. It's not very far. Bible pages are usually skinny, so don't jump over it. Find Deuteronomy and go to chapter 7. I'm going to read verses 7 to 11 as, uh, as Moses is pointing out the character of God. And especially pay attention to verse 9. It's our memory verse for the week. 
Starting with verse 7, the Lord did not set his affection on you, Israel, and chose you and choose you because you were more numerous than other peoples. For you were the fewest of all peoples. This isn't about you. God chose you because he wanted to, not because you were great. Verse 8, but it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your forefathers. Notice that's our theme. He loved you and kept the oath he swore to your forefathers that he brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you, important word, he brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery, from the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God. He is the faithful God, keeping his covenant of love to a thousand generations of those who love him and keep his commands. But those who hate him, he will repay to their face by destruction. He will not be slow to repay to their face those who hate him. Therefore, take care to follow the commands, decrees, and laws I give you today. That picture of his loving justice. He cares for the weak, the fatherless, the defenseless. But his justice cuts both ways, and he punishes the wicked. God will not, will not allow sin to go unpunished, ever. The character of the Lord is consistent. God is faithful to his sovereign purpose, his covenant promises, and his loving justice. What we see here is God doing what God has always intended to do. Now, God uses case law, if I can use that term, repeatedly to bring about what theologians would call a progressive revelation. He doesn't just do this big info dump on us all at one time, so here it is. That's too much for us to process. He gives the law, then he develops it for his people as situations come up. Here's how it works as a general rule. Then something comes up that doesn't seem to fit the general rule. And God clarifies. I I, want to say modifies, but really what he's doing is clarifying. Because his word is already perfect. Jesus said the two greatest commands are to love God with all your being and to love your neighbor as yourself, which is a reflection of the first. That's all you need. And yet God gave us ten that capture those two. And then God gave us an entire book of Leviticus, an entire book of Deuteronomy to flesh that out. He didn't change the law. The priority is still God above all. And because God is above all, we love those whom God created in his image. If we do those things, Jesus said, Paul reiterates it, the rest of the law will fall into place on its own. Because love does no harm to a neighbor, so I don't need the the rest of the law that details how not to harm your neighbor if I already know I don't harm my neighbor. Don't steal. Well, yeah, I got that covered because if I love my neighbor, I'm not going to steal. Don't sleep with your neighbor's wife. Uh, Duh, if I love my neighbor, why would I do that? Right? I've got to actually make sure that I'm thinking these things through. God's not changing his law. He's clarifying. When Jesus was giving the Sermon on the Mount, he didn't remove the law. He didn't lessen the law. He actually raised it. What he said is, you've been focused on the externals. I'm telling you, God looks on those sins nobody knows about because they're in your heart when you didn't actually kill that guy that's good we don't we don't want to kill people but you hated him in your heart 
You're a heart murderer. And you're guilty of that same sin before God. Not before civil courts. We don't, this is a little sidebar, my own soapbox. This is why I have a real issue with thought crimes and hate crimes. We're ascribing motives that we cannot actually define. We need to judge actions. Anything else becomes unjust very quickly. It might make sense to our flesh, but it doesn't match God's justice. Coming back to, the, to what we're talking about in the text, God is faithful to his sovereign purpose, his covenant promises, and his loving justice. That's his nature. So we see the character of the Lord. We also see, secondly, the character of the women. Now, this is where I think a lot of commentators will get sidetracked into, well, this is all about women's rights. This is about these women going out and claiming what belongs to them, and those darn men were going to take it away from That's not what it says. And God actually doesn't give them a, a, a usurping of the roles. There's a difference between men and women, and God's law says, viva la difference. It upholds that difference, but it establishes and affirms the equality of men and women, right? I'm a dad, my wife's a mom. Those two things are not going to be switched ever. They can't be. It doesn't matter what a modern world tells us, you can't switch it. I'm a man, she's a woman. That does not change. I'm really happy about that arrangement, by the way, personally. I'm just saying. We have a lot of confusion in our world about a lot of issues. And obviously it's June and everybody talks about Pride Month and all this kind of stuff. Don't get hung up on thinking that those sins that somebody else is sinning that you don't identify with are somehow worse. They're different. They're, it's a different stripe, a different flavor of sin than your preference. However, they are higher symptoms of the same cancer. I won't have you turn there, but you can look at Romans 1. It's not listed in your program. You can jot down Romans 1 and check that out for further reference for yourself. Sin is the cancer that's killing everyone and all of society. The symptoms come at varying levels. Some are natural sins, some are unnatural sins. And the biggest sin seems to be approving of those who sin. It's not just doing it, it's celebrating it. We need to be aware that if we care even a little bit about God, if we care even a little bit about our fellow man or woman, we need to hate what God hates and love what God loves. You cannot, you cannot love someone and lie to them by telling them that what God hates is okay or good for them. That is not love. That is harm. At the same time, you can't bash somebody over the head with your Bible and call that love either. Right? Okay, so the character of these women show up in that they come, they seek this redress, but they come on behalf of their father's family line. They're not just grabbing and greedy and I want this and give me that and Lord, you know, take care of my rights. The Lord does take care of them through this. We'll see again in chapter 36 that there's a clarification that, that the land is to stay with the family. So when these women get married later, if they were to marry outside of the clan, outside of the tribe, then 
this land that's to belong to their father's line would go with them to someone else. And God says, no, no, that's not how this works. The land stays with the family. So you're free to marry anyone you want within the tribe. So we'll get to that in chapter 36. They're not coming for themselves. They will benefit, but they come for God's honor, the legacy of their father being passed on, and the good of the nation. Mark this down. Those who believe the Lord wholeheartedly will seek the Lord boldly. Those who believe the Lord wholeheartedly will seek the Lord boldly. Right? So, uh, again, keep Numbers 27 marked. Turn all the way to the New Testament, to the book of Luke. Luke chapter 18. You're probably around four-fifths of the way through your Bible. If you find Acts and Romans, back up a little bit. You'll find those gospel books, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John in that order. And when you get to Luke 18, we're not going to read the whole thing, but I do, want to, I do want to draw your attention to one story in that chapter, the first one. If you have an NIV in front of you, they have the heading, The Parable of the Persistent Widow. You can follow along with me. Starting with verse 1, Then Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. This is, I love it when they give us the purpose, right? They're telling us right here, here's the core reality. Always pray, not give up. He said, in a certain town, there was a judge who neither feared God nor cared about men. In other words, he's a bad judge, right? Not, not a faithful guy, not a, not a good man, not a moral man. He neither feared God nor cared about men, and yet he held power. And there was a widow in that town who kept coming to him with the plea, grant me justice against my adversary. Now, we're not really told what the justice is, what the adversary has done. But grant me justice against my adversary. The woman is powerless. She comes to the one with power and she seeks help. Verse 4. For some time he refused. But finally he said to himself, even though I don't fear God and I don't care about men, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, there's a picture of prayer, right? Because this widow keeps bothering me, I will see that she gets justice so that she won't eventually wear me out with her coming. I'm reminded of some Proverbs like, uh, you know, better live on a corner of a roof than in a house with a nagging wife. You know, the, these kinds of things. Amen. Yeah. I'm not sitting by him, so, you know. <laughs> but there, this is the picture. She's basically badgering him. And God is saying, this is how you should pray. Did you ever think about that? Keep on praying. But I, I don't see a result. Keep on praying. I don't see how this can possibly get resolved. Keep on praying. Why? Here's what he says. Verse uh, 6. The Lord said, Listen to what the unjust judge says. And will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? I tell you, he will see that they get justice and quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? What's the picture that he's giving us here? 
There's a contrast between this unjust judge who still answers her plea eventually just because it's like, fine, okay, I'll take care of what I should have taken care of in the first place. And he's saying, if, if this evil man, if this unjust man, if he does this, do you really think that your heavenly father who's perfectly just and perfectly loving, who has called you his own treasured possession, is going to not give you justice? So keep on asking. Keep on pressing. Come like a child with that thing you really, really want. If it is good for you, your father will bring it. And if he does not, he has a reason. I don't have to understand the reason. I have to trust my Father's character. God is faithful to His sovereign purpose, His covenant promises, and His loving justice. When I know that about Him and I trust that about Him, then I can come to Him to seek His help. Those who believe the Lord wholeheartedly will seek the Lord boldly. If I believe that God will answer, then I will pursue him. Notice this second. The limits of our actions reflect the limits of our belief. The limits of our actions reflect the limits of our belief. Notice how that pertains. Those who believe the Lord wholeheartedly, if I believe him with all of my heart, not holding back, not half my heart, like I kind of believe, you know, but uh, I'm not really sure this is going to happen, so I'm going to hedge my bet a little bit. No, i got to believe wholeheartedly. Again, it's like jumping out of a plane. I'm not half trusting my parachute and then flapping my arms really hard. It either, it, it's either the parachute or it's nothing. So when I believe God, not just believe in God, don't, don't misunderstand. Lots of people believe in God. The devil believes in God. When I believe that God keeps his word, I know what he says, I trust what he says, this is why it's important, again, as we saw last week, it's important for fathers to be a picture of that for their children. You need to be a man of your word so that they know what God is like. And every time you fail to be a man of your word, you chip away a little bit of, that, of their image of God. You're not going to get it perfect, so let go of that guilt. But that needs to be the orientation of your life is to be a man of your word, because God is. Now, if I believe that with my whole heart, then I'm not going to, to just hold back and say, I, you know, I don't know if God's going to give me what I, what I need. I'm going to act boldly. I'm going to seek him boldly, knowing that he wants to bless his children. Those who trust in the Lord find a faithful advocate. In this world, there are lots of unfaithful advocates, aren't there? People who should be on your side and are not. People who should be defending the weak and are not. We live in a broken society, in a fallen, sinful world. But in, in the Lord, we find a faithful advocate. The limits of our actions reflect the limits of our belief. If I don't believe God is faithful, if I don't believe that He is good and great, those of you who know the common table prayer might remember that. God is great, God is good. Let us thank Him for this food. I almost had a Laverne and Shirley moment. That's not just some trite little thing that kids say. That's doctrinally rich. God is great. He is massive. He is beyond and he is powerful and able to do everything. And he is good and he wants to. 
He wants to bless his children. If I believe that about him, that he's able to give me good things, only good things, and all good things, and I believe that he is good and wants to because I am his child, I am in covenant with him, and he has made promises to those who are in covenant with him, well then, I'm going to pursue that. But if I fail to, if I'm afraid to, if I'm afraid to act boldly, then the limit of my actions demonstrates the limit of my belief. I'm not believing God wholeheartedly. I'm only believing Him with part of my heart. Hebrews 11.6, you don't have to turn there, but you could jot it down, look it up on your own, you're sensible people. Hebrews 11.6, in this great chapter about faith, starts out that faith is the substance of things unseen, the certainty of things hoped for. When you get down to verse 6, it says that <laughs> he who comes to God without faith, it's impossible to please God because the one that comes to God has to believe that he exists and has to believe that he is a rewarder of those that seek him. In other words, just like these women, I don't come to God if I don't think he's going to be a rewarder of those who come to him. They come to Moses and the leaders and the Lord because they believe, they trust that God is just. And therefore, those who represent God will act justly. If they didn't believe it, then they wouldn't do it. Third, we see the character of the law. As we look at God's law, God's law, also we refer to it very often as God's word, is the expression of his heart, his will, his character. Notice this. The, Lord, the Lord's commands preserve his gracious intent to bless his people. The Lord's commands preserve his gracious intent to bless his people. For the sake of time, I want to have you turn there. I do want to just draw your attention to Psalm 119. It's easy to find. Psalms are in the middle of your Bible. So if you crack it open in the center, you're probably either in Psalms or pretty close. Psalm 119 is the biggest of the Psalms. It's the longest single chapter in the Bible. And it is entirely devoted to being David's love song to God's word. That, that's, that's the whole theme. Lord, I love your law. Your law gives life. Your law makes me wiser than my teachers. I, I've failed in so many ways, and yet I've held to your law. And so because I'm holding to your law, even when I fail, Lord, you seek me out. The very foundation of the Psalms is Psalm 1, where the contrast is between the wicked, unbelieving person who pursues their own thing, sinfulness, scornfulness, mockery, I'm going to go do my stuff, and the one who belongs to God, whose delight is in the law of the Lord and on his law he meditates day and night. That person will be like a tree planted by water, firm roots, strong, immovable, bearing fruit in season, never withering. That's what God's law does. It preserves his gracious intent to bless his people. Notice, secondly, 
the Lord's commands affirm different roles and equal value for men and women. The Lord's commands affirm different roles and equal value for men and women. Notice what doesn't happen in this passage. Zelophehad has no sons, so he can't pass on the inheritance to his sons. So his daughters come, saying, give us property in our dad's name. What God does not tell Moses to do is to do away with the law of sons inheriting from their fathers. This is not, strictly speaking, a liberation passage. It's still God's intent for that to pass from the tribal heads to their sons. But if there isn't a son, women are not lesser humans. They're created in my image the same as you are men. I created you male and female, both in my image. And you are made differently to serve different purposes, my purposes. Not to serve each other's purposes. You don't live for yourself. You are mine and you live for me. Therefore, when I say this is the role of a man and this is the role of a woman, who gets to question me? I am the Lord. But don't you dare start abusing that and thinking that women are second-class citizens. They're created in my image and they're precious to me. And so he makes provision for these women to inherit the, the property of their father, to pass on the legacy, pass on the family name, but does not nullify the law that he's already given, the instructions about how to divvy up the land or, how, or who is to redeem things. Leviticus 25 speaks of the year of Jubilee when everything gets returned to its previous owner so that all the land that may have been sold in the last 50 years still stays in the family line. This is a law for Israel, not for the rest of us. It's for Israel. And he provides in there this picture of a kinsman redeemer. That if you get into debt and you have to sell your land, you can have someone in your family, the nearest relative, and he gives the specifics, can come and purchase that land back to keep it in the family where it belongs. And we refer to that often as the kinsman redeemer. We see that picture in the book of Ruth. When Ruth, who's a Moabitess, remember that's the enemy here in this number story, comes and, and she uh, proclaims her loyalty to her mother-in-law, Naomi, who is a Jewess, but went into Moab when there was a famine, and her husband and her sons died. Therefore, where's the inheritance go? They were in poverty, they sold the land to deal with it, so now what are they going to do? And she comes across a wealthy man, Boaz, who also is a godly and kind man. And Boaz happens, just by accident, or perhaps God's sovereign and already had a plan. I'm going to go with that one. Boaz is the kinsman redeemer for Naomi's family. So long story short, he marries Ruth, brings her in. He is the redeemer. He is the, the picture of Christ who will come figuratively, but he also is one of the ancestors of Christ through David's line. God is working out this redemption story through the whole thing. So now the, the Lord's commands affirm the different roles and equal value for men and women. He goes out of his way to protect the weak. In Galatians 3, 
verses 26 to 29, we're told that in Christ, because of what Christ has done, we are all equal. We are all equal partakers of him. There's no difference between male and female, Jew and Gentile, Republican and Democrat, black and white, Bears fans and Packers. Well, no, that might not. I don't know if I can go have that much grace, but... <clears throat> Listen, I've learned to accept you Cardinals fans. I, I don't know if I can go far enough with the Packers fans. Foreman's not even here. So anyway, the reality is there's all these earthly differences. They don't matter. What matters is are you in Christ or are you not? If you're in Christ, you are an heir. If you are not in Christ, then you are separated from God. Simple. That's all it is. The Lord's commands affirm different roles, equal value for men and women. Third, notice... The Lord's commands offer justice when there seems to be no hope. The Lord's commands offer justice when there seems to be no hope. Turn, if you would, to Deuteronomy chapter 10. Again, you know it's the book right after Numbers. While you're turning there, I'll just kind of give you a heads up. <clears throat> We're not going directly into Numbers after this. We'll go to the New Testament. But as we are looking at <clears throat> the flow of things... Deuteronomy comes right, right after Numbers closes. They're about to go into the promised land. And God has Moses give them the law a second time. Deuteronomos, the, the second law, the second giving of the law. And so he's, he's reviewing, if you will, for them what it looks like to live as holy. He's established that in Leviticus. We have uh, some... some little sparks of that in numbers now in deuteronomy it's a new generation they weren't there when their father when their fathers got the law now before you go into this land let me tell you what's going on then moses dies at the end and we go into the book of joshua which should have happened at numbers 15 but sin kept us from it so deuteronomy 10 verses 17 to 19 look at what he says this is this is the description of god's law his his heart what is it that he wants from his people for the lord your god is god of gods and lord of lords the great god mighty and awesome who shows no partiality and accepts no bribes he defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow and loves the alien giving him food and clothing and you are to love those who are aliens, for you yourselves were aliens in Egypt. He goes on, I'd love to keep reading, but for the sake of time, we won't. In the New Testament as well, James tells us in chapter 1 of his letter that religion that our, our God considers pure and faultless is the kind of religion that looks after widows and orphans. He had already said, anybody who <laughs> claims to be in him but doesn't keep a tight rein on his tongue is a liar. Uh, I got some conviction about my tongue right now, right? You can include your social media in that. When we don't have tight control on the things that we say, the things that we express, we're accountable to God for that. And if we're in Him, if you are in Christ, and you say you love Him, you can't not love your neighbor. 
You can't not love your brother. Therefore, if you love God and you love neighbor, that shows up when we use the term religion biblically. It's the outworking of our inner faith, not what label is your church. The outworking of our faith shows up in caring for those who need to be cared for. The Lord's commands offer justice when there seems to be no hope. These women came to Moses and the leadership who represented God because in the normal way of doing things, what they saw in their normal legal standing offered them no hope. What are we going to do? We can't say, well, here's the law, we're going to stand on this law, because there doesn't seem to be any hope that way. We're going to cry out to God. We're going to appeal to our Father and those who represent our Father, trusting that He is good and just, even when everything that we know in society and culture seems to say the opposite. The law of God is good and pleasing. It's not a burden, it's a blessing. We are blessed when we keep his commandments, not because we're earning his favor, but because he's the one that created it all and designed how it works. Only makes sense that we're going to do better by following his instructions. Even if you don't have a relationship with him. Even if you spend eternity in hell because you missed Christ. If you live according to God's law, the life you live is going to be a life better lived. Makes sense, right? Uh, Doug and Mel, we were just talking about this. I, if I can use my, my fancy iPhone to pound a nail in the wall once, it, it might work for that moment. But it's not what it was designed for. It's not going to work as well as a hammer, Right? George, if I'm putting a roof down, I'm going around with an iPhone trying to knock, stuff, knock nails in. That's dumb, isn't it? That's what sin is. Sin is dumb. It's foolishness for us to go against the design of the one who created things. So when God says, don't do this, just crazy thought. Don't do it! And when God says, do this, get real serious about getting it done. The Lord's commands offer justice when there seems to be no hope. Now here's the problem. That, that can sound like a real simple platitude. Yeah, that's, real, that's great. Except from my experience, in my life, seems to say there isn't any hope. Because all this junk keeps happening. And the people I count on to step up when they need to step up don't. And the people that I thought I could trust, I can't. So now what? What are you going to say about that, preacher? I'm going to point to the same book. The Lord's commands offer justice. The problem, the reason that we see no hope, is because we don't follow the Lord's commands. We're trying to bring our own broken, limited, sinful human wisdom to bear on the problems of life. And we miss out on the real life that he offers. Of course, 
this world is filled with injustice. Of course things go wrong. Of course there's racism. Of course there's, there's every possible injustice you can think of. Misogyny, abuse, perversion. Because we have been separated from God. We cast aside his commands thinking we've got a better way. And we've been doing it since Eden. We live in a world that can't, can't provide perfect justice. But God promises us that the day is coming when the Messiah will rule directly and all the sin that he's already paid for at the cross will not only be deprived of its power, it will not only be deprived of its penalty, its sting, it will be deprived of its very presence. And the sin that makes this world broken and unjust will be removed altogether. And there will be no more tears. And there will be no more abuse and there will be no more sadness and betrayal because there will be no more sin. The reason that you're hurting so badly when those things are absent is because you're created in the image of God and there is a hole in your heart crying out to be filled by Him, to live in a world that He is directly, completely reigning in. So every time we face injustice, betrayal, disappointment with God, loss, got a funeral after church today, every time we go through these things, the hurt, the pain should remind us of the hope that there is a new world coming. God's not done. He told the truth in his book because truth is who he is. He is loving. And the wicked will be punished. Praise God for the rest of us who in our very nature are wicked. His punishment already fell on Christ for those who will receive him. Because if we're even a little bit honest with ourselves, the Bible's very clear. Every single one of us falls short of God's glory and has earned the wages of sin, which is death, eternal separation from God. Nobody gets out of that. And you either will receive God's justice and his punishment for your sin, or you will receive God's mercy because he let his punishment fall on Christ and you have been found in Christ. Those are the only two options. Nobody escapes God's justice. And nobody is treated unjustly. You either receive His justice or you receive His mercy. And while this section deals with Israel's distribution of the promised land and God's law regarding the line of inheritance, it also points us to our great Redeemer, Jesus Christ. God had a wonderful gift for His people this land of promise. But sin had separated that unfaithful generation from God's presence and from God's promises. 
back, all the way back in chapter 6, before they ever got started, God stamped his name on them with that priestly prayer, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you, a sign of intimacy, that he's showing you favor and give you peace. That was what God declared over the, over the nation through the priesthood. And they were separated from that. The daughters of Zelophehad had no legal claim to the inheritance on their own, but God gave them the right to become full legal heirs by his own declaration. In the same way, sin has separated us from God, and we have no legal standing before the holy God. Sinners have no case to plead. God, I, I, I'm looking for your clemency here because what? I didn't do it? No, you did it. Uh, it. It's no big deal? No, it is an infinitely big deal. Those little sins that you think are no big deal, that is cosmic treason against the God of the universe. And like all treason, is punishable by death. No, no, I, I have no legal standing before the holy God. But God, who is rich in mercy, made a way for us by his grace given to us in Christ. By his own decree, he declares us full legal heirs to all that belongs to his only begotten son. Think about that for a second. If you're in Christ, you have the exact same legal standing before God as Jesus himself. To everyone who receives Christ by faith, he gives the right to become children of God. And as Paul points out in Romans 8, if children than heirs not because of anything in us not because we are so great that God just had to have us it's not because he didn't want heaven without us so he brought heaven down dump that heresy from your mind that's why we change the lyric to the song sometimes God's glory already filled heaven God is complete without you and me he doesn't need us, but somehow he wants us. That's the picture we see here in these daughters receiving the inheritance by God's grace and his decree. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, you have offered us rights that we have no business trying to claim on our own. You have offered us hope that this world cannot possibly offer. That even in the midst of the injustice that we inevitably see in a world full of sinners, that one day, ultimate justice will come and sin will be no more. Father, may we be found in Christ so that when all sin and therefore all sinners are wiped out that we might be found in him as saints. Not by our good works, but according to your mercy. Father, we thank you for your faithful character that provides justice in a world of injustice. Thank you that not for one moment have you forsaken your people you are good
We pray these things in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen.